All right. Hello, Texans, and welcome to the podcast. Mark Vandermeer with you, joined by Rich Lord, who I used to do afternoon drive with a long time ago. Like, all right, it's maybe not that long ago. To he and I, it probably seems like three weeks ago, but to uh, <laughs> to younger folk, it's uh, definitely a long time ago. But Rich, great to have you on. How's it going? It's going well, Mark. How are you and your family doing during the pandemic? Getting through it like everybody else. Well, hopefully like everybody else. But uh, yeah, a lot going on, obviously, with this. And, uh, you know, life moves on, but very differently. So uh, I, I hope you and Jenny and I know Katie's somewhere. Where is she? Your daughter. Uh, her travels have taken her to Lake Tahoe these days. So uh, life doesn't suck, as we used to say. Yes, not bad at all. All right, I wanted to get into this with you. Uh, the early days of sports talk radio. Let's start there because I, I find this fascinating. I began my career in the very late 80s, almost 1990. WFAN was out there. I think that might have been the only sports radio station in the country at the time. Uh, when you began your career, had they started up yet? Uh, were you thinking about sports only? What was that like when you started off? So I got into radio in 1981. And FAN in New York launched, I want to say, in the mid to late 80s. And they were indeed the first all-sports talk station in, in the country. And at the time, I remember thinking, I love sports talk on the radio. I'm not sure it's viable to be doing it 24-7, but obviously I was proven wrong. And just a quick story, in the late 80s, I was working down the dial at KTRH at 740 in Houston, and a brilliant sports guy by the name of John O'Reilly, who I worked with, I admired, he kind of mentored me, he really showed me the ropes, um, was a very established guy in the business at the time. He did morning drive on KTRH Monday through Friday, and FAN, when they first launched, flew him to New York every weekend on Friday night to do shows on Saturday and Sunday, and then flew him back to Houston every Sunday night to go back to his full-time job. And that's when I first got to know a little bit about FAN, all sports radio. And honestly, Mark, it took until 1994 before we got all sports radio in Houston. We were one of the last, if not the last, major market in America to actually uh, – have an all sports station establish itself in the market. And now there's like what, 16 of them in Houston. I mean, it just feels like that sometimes rich. <laughs> and you know, when, when you combine that with all the podcasts, certainly. All right. So 94. All right. So you're working for KTRH and sports radio 610 is about to start up. And Dickie Rosenfeld, who's a legend in this business, in this market. And I tweeted out a picture last week because I just happened to find it in my scroll somewhere of the, of the Beatles playing uh, when they they got here, what, 64, 65? I think it was 64. And you see KILT underneath the drum set, which is fantastic to think yeah. about that. And that was, that was Sports Radio 610, really. Uh, it was KILT AM, not FM. Uh, and Dickie brought the Beatles here. Uh, were you around Dickie much? And what can you share with us about how he helped get Sports Radio 610 started? Yeah, I'm fortunate enough to be among those who were actually hired by Dickie Rosenfeld. Mm -hmm. It's the only time in my life that anyone has come to me and I've had a job and said to me, you want to come work for me? I mean, usually it's like, well, you know, I think this is uh, gone as far as it's going to go. We wish you luck, that kind of thing. Yeah. But he actually recruited me and it was a nice feeling. And uh, he uh, got me to leave KTRH, come over to 610 
and work an afternoon drive with Kenny Hand at the time. They, they launched in 94. This was fall of 95. So they were up and running for about a year when they recruited me. And at the time, it was Mike Edmonds and Ed Fowler in morning drive. And Kenny was actually doing afternoon drive by himself. And then they hired me and paired me with him. But uh, Dickie was a character, no doubt about it. I'm so lucky to have known him. Well, when you were at KTRH, you were doing a sports talk show with Charlie at the time. Was that the case? It was called Sports Speed. And Charlie and I and Russ Small uh, rotated. Uh, there were three of us, and there was always at least two of us hosting the show Monday through Friday. But, you know, my, my last two years at KTRH were the Rockets' back-to-back championships. Mm-hmm. And we were the flagship station for the Rockets uh, at one point, for a very short period of time, we had the Rockets, the Astros, and the Oilers all on KTRH simultaneously. The Astros were not too happy about that. They left pretty quickly for 950. But for a short period of time, we had all three major league teams in town. So, I mean, we were the sports station, even though we weren't all sports. And for Houston radio people or radio fans listening, back then – the stations all had different owners. I mean, the consolidation was just starting to hit in the mid nineties with the 1996 uh, federal telecommunications act and everything enabling ownership of virtually unlimited amounts of stations and things like that. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. When I worked for KTRH, it was owned by the Jones family, which uh, Jones hall downtown. I'm a very uh, legendary storied family in the history of of Houston, Texas, but the Jones family owned KTRH. And actually during my nearly nine years at KTRH, that's when what you're referring to took place. The whole uh, sort of corporate takeover of radio in America. Mm -hmm. Like you said, they changed the laws and suddenly you could own, I think up to six radio stations in a single market, which you couldn't do previously. And so, yeah, we got bought up. I believe before I left there, the company was called Evergreen uh, Media that had bought us up. But yes, everything changed after that for sure. It was a family business up until that, not anymore. What was it like on the air, on the air of taking calls, complaints, whatever, when the Oilers were getting ready to move and then finally moving, and then you go into this sort of desert period before the Texans are awarded to Houston in fall of 1999, ultimately beginning play in 2002. But what was that whole process like, Rich? It was brutal, Mark. It really was. It was like uh, slow torture as the months and and even years went by where it became inevitable that we were going to lose the Oilers. But – there was nothing we could do about it. And, and there's a really common, very uh, uh, largely widely held uh, belief outside of Houston that the city of Houston did nothing to keep the Oilers, that we were ambivalent about it. We couldn't wait to, you know, show them the door. Uh, that, that's not true at all. Uh, that came from the fact that there was a rally in downtown Houston long after the deal was a done deal, by the way, to sort of uh, try to, uh, muster support for keeping the Oilers and about 60 people showed up. So the, the wire services and the networks picked up on that as an indication that Houston wasn't interested in retaining the Oilers. The truth is it was a done deal by then and there was nothing Houston could do about it. And it was like a weekday morning at like 10 AM. So, um, you know, people working and so forth. Um, the support was there, uh, but Bud Adams pretty much made it impossible for Houston to match anything Nashville offered the Oilers. They opened what they called an exclusive negotiating period with the city of Nashville, which meant no matter what Houston threw at the Oilers, they weren't going to stay. 
So painful. It ultimately worked out, though, because it, the Texans <laughs> came to town. Now, you're at Sports Radio 610, and there's talk about Bob McNair maybe wanting to bring a team here. He wanted the NHL originally. Uh, was that playing very big at the time that McNair and Chuck Watson wanted an NHL team here and then ultimately it switched over to the NFL? Absolutely. That was, a, that was the big story for a long time. I mean, think about it, Mark. You're making your living talking sports on the radio, and for five years there's no NFL team in Houston, mm -hmm. Texas. It's really unthinkable when you, when you think about it, and, and that's what we went through for five years. It was absolutely brutal. Uh, the worst stretch of, of, of my career, really, in terms of struggling for, you know, I mean, honestly, at the, at the same time, Drake McClain was talking about Northern Virginia relocating the Astros, mm -hmm. and Les Alexander was talking about uh, New Orleans, which did not have an NBA team. I mean, honestly, the conversation was, are we about to become a minor league sports town? Because we'd already lost the Oilers, and now the Astros and the Rockets were talking about leaving. So it was brutal, and when Bob McNair put together – his uh, organization to try to bring back the NFL to Houston. I mean, obviously, everyone was fired up about that. Another thing that a lot of people forget is that it came down to Houston and Los Angeles because the Rams had left Los Angeles, and the NFL preferred Los Angeles over Houston. As a matter of fact, the NFL awarded the 32nd franchise to Los Angeles. It was over. We lost. And then suddenly in Los Angeles – there was no support for public funding of a stadium for the expansion team. And so they dropped the ball in LA they could not come up with any funding for a stadium. And so the NFL turned back to Bob McNair and Houston and said, okay, LA apparently is unable to do this. Do you guys have a deal that would make it viable in Houston? And that's when Bob pounced, wrote a check for $700 million and the rest is history. Yep. History indeed. So that was 1999. Amazing. What was the, what was the dominant NFL team that you would talk about on the air during the big void of having an NFL team here? Was it the Cowboys? Was it the Titans who used to be the Oilers? How did you play that on the air? Honestly, I don't want to sound uh, too extreme when I say this, but there were still a lot of fans of the Oiler franchise in Houston. And quite honestly, that disgusted me at the time. <laughs> so they, they kicked you in the gut. They've, they've abandoned you, and yet for some reason you still feel this attachment to the Columbia Blue. And, you know, so there were actually Titan fans. You know, when the Texans began play here in 02, people would show up in Titans jerseys at, yeah. at, uh, at the stadium. So there were still a, a fair amount of fans following that franchise here in Houston. But in terms of a dominant team that we discussed, I mean, maybe the Cowboys because there's always been a – fairly strong contingent of Cowboy fans in the greater Houston area. But nothing, there was no team like the Saints or the Cowboys or anybody else that we felt was our own team. Mm, yeah, I mean, because there wasn't until the Texans came along. And there must have been a great deal of excitement at Sports Radio 610 to become the flagship station when that was awarded to 610. Your station, as opposed to going to your old employer, KTRH, or somewhere else, uh, I got to – think you remember that pretty well it was kind of a culmination because as I mentioned I joined 610 in 95 mm -hmm. and about a year after I got there uh, Dickie Rosenfeld somehow uh, mm -hmm. I don't even know how he did this but somehow in 96 
he managed to get the Astros away from KTRH and signed a three-year deal for 610 to carry Astros games. That put us on the map, no doubt about it. That was the first thing. And then in 97, uh, Jim signed a deal to carry the Jim Rome show, which in the late 90s was a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I remember hearing Jim Rome on, on 610 for the first time and thinking, oh, my God, what is this? This is like nothing I've ever heard before. People don't realize how radically different Rome was in the late 90s to anything else sports talk on the radio at the time. So the Astros and Jim Rome put the station on the map. And then a couple of years later, uh, when Laura Morrison company negotiated the deal with the Texans, it was a 10-year deal to be the flagship station for Houston Texans football, that's when we felt like we were cemented in the market, that we weren't going away. This thing wasn't going to fail. We were in it for the long haul. So it it was gigantic, no doubt about it. I I remember it like it was yesterday, Mark. We did a bunch of remote broadcasts uh, from downtown. Uh, There was a big uh, reveal of the name of the team. It It was huge, big stuff. You know, you bring up Rome, and it does blow me away how big he was. And when I got to the market in 2002, he was still huge for a number of years. And the tour stops, you know, he'd do live events big time. Uh, the the smack off was a big deal at the time. I mean, Sean Pendergast, uh, what is a – is he a five-time winner of that thing? Five-time winner of the smack off, yes, I mean, absolutely. He, I mean, that's like Warren Moon winning five Grey Cups in Canada or something. Yeah, he was known on the Rome show as the Cablin Asian. Yeah. In the late 90s, I guess Tiger Woods, uh, somebody asked about his ethnic background, and he jokingly called himself a Cablin Asian because he's got, I guess, Caucasian, Black, and Asian heritage. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. Sean picked up on that and labeled himself a Cablin Asian. And I got to tell you, I did five years with Sean on 610. You know, he's a great guy. Yep. He's a very talented guy. And I, I couldn't believe, just from the phone calls on the smack off the Jim Rome, he's just a very clever guy. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I knew he had some talent. At the time when he was the Cabellan Asian, he was not in our business. Mm-hmm. He was trying to break into our business and eventually did, obviously. But, uh uh, yeah, Sean's, Sean's a good guy, very talented guy, and I'm happy to have worked with him for five years. Yeah, I think it's really incredible to look at your partners uh, doing the show, and, and you've worked with uh, me, uh, Charlie Palillo, uh, as you said, Sean Pendergast, Matt Jackson, Kenny Han, Robert Hensley, uh, the list goes on, and Josh. I mean, Josh, I mean, that was a really incredible show you guys did at the time. I know it featured Josh and you know, Josh comes with his own set of circumstances, but, you know, he's still kicking around for sure. And uh, that is to, when you look back at the people you worked with, and here's the thing, you always did well. And, and anybody who worked with you was going to do well. And I, I just think that's a tribute to you. You know, Mark, I'm, I'm definitely proud of the fact that, you know, people would joke with me over the years that, uh, you know, all these guys leave, they must not be able to stand working with you. But, like you point out, almost all of them, if not all of them, when they left, went on to bigger and better things, which, which I think should be kind of a source of pride. And I'm glad you mentioned Josh because, you know, everybody knows that listened to the show for the three years that he and I worked together, that we almost came to blows on a few occasions. That, that's, yeah. that's no secret. Um, but I'm, I'm actually really proud of Josh and what he's grown into um, because he was – and he'll agree with this, I know, because we've discussed it. He was a pretty immature guy, 
who did a lot of things, who made a lot of bad decisions, both on the air and off the air. And he actually invited me not only to be on his podcast recently, but to join him for a couple of hours on the show he does on 97.5 here mm -hmm. in Houston. And I, I thought that was a great gesture because things did not end well when he left Houston in, right. I guess, the end of 2013 for us. And I feel like he's, he's grown. He's come a long way. He's still controversial, still says a few things now and then on the air that kind of make you turn your head a little bit. But I feel like he's come a long way in terms of his personal growth and development. And uh, that's good. That's a good thing to see. I like Josh. People think I hate Josh. I don't hate Josh. I never hated Josh. We didn't get along. But uh, I I'm glad that he's doing well. I really am. I thought you played it very well with him. You, you took on sort of a different sort of role than you usually do, and it all worked, right? Uh, it was a very entertaining show that you did with him. And it's funny because he's so talented, and you work with like a Palillo who you were with in the afternoons when I got to Houston, and he's a super talented guy, but a very different kind of talent. I mean, you've worked with a lot of different kind of people. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I was very lucky to work with all those people. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because I think what gets lost in the controversy that Josh often generates is mm -hmm. that he's a very talented broadcaster. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's no doubt about it at all. All right, so um, the Texans, they start up and, you know, I enter the story in 2002, you know, as far as your career at Sports Radio 610 goes, and I remember, do you remember doing the expansion draft show? And, you know, I love Bill Van Rysdam. I mean, I love him because he helped bring me here. But, that's oh, my gosh. That's the first day I met you. Yeah, and he's like, do four hours with Richard Charlie. Just, like, just go. And I'm thinking, all right, these guys are going to hate me. <laughs> and, like, it was just. 2002. Yeah, exactly. February 18, 2002. And uh, it was just, it was, it was fun to meet you guys. But I remember being on the air. I was like, these guys don't want me here. Uh, but <laughs> that was so weird that time because uh, there was a show, you mentioned Rome. He was on 11 to 2 and there was the Rome wraparound. There was literally, literally a shift of 10 to 11 before yeah. Rome got started. And then two to three when you guys would get on the air. And it was bizarre at the time. And I finally convinced them, I gotta have like a couple hours in a row here. I mean, this is like, you can't do a show like that. Like do an hour, take three hours off and then do another hour, but it all worked out. It, it did, it did. The, the, it's funny you mentioned Rome and the odd hours because at one point, I think this was maybe prior to your arrival in Houston, maybe not, but at one point, uh, Dickie Rosenfeld made the decision that he was going to tape delay the Jim Rome show, right. either by an hour or two hours. I don't quite remember all the details, but he was going to tape delay it. And I believe David Barron of the Chronicle wrote about this. And this was early, early days of the internet. So I don't even think he heard about it on the internet, but somehow it got back to Rome that Dickie had this plan. He hadn't implemented the plan yet, but he had this plan. And that the day Rome found out about that, he went on the air and absolutely destroyed Dickey, destroyed 610. Don't you dare even think about tape delaying this show. I will take this across the street, you know, and yeah. to another station in Houston, made all these threats. And I'm sitting at home listening to this, getting ready for my show. And all of a sudden, I hear Rome take a phone call, and it's Dickey. No! Call 
calling into the Rome show saying, hey, uh, Rome, uh, listen, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't mean it. I'm not going to do it. Don't worry about it. Whatever we need to do. I mean, he was like, I was like, no, you're, you're surrendering to this guy. <laughs> but it was, it was another unforgettable memory from that time. Uh, that's, that's pretty powerful stuff, you know, because Rome for a time was – I mean, he's still on the air every day, but it's not the same. No, uh, not. You know, like Rush Limbaugh's on the air every day. And I don't want to say it's the same as it was in the 90s or the O's when he started, but he still, he still packs a punch in terms of the economic impact when he delivers to the stations and everything. Uh-huh. Rome is not the same thing. It's funny how things, you know, get cycled through like that in radio. And even in the market, Rich, when I got here, Hudson and Harrigan were on the air on our sister station, KLTFM 100.3. And I loved meeting those guys, uh, but their name—I was not surprised, but I was intrigued to learn that their names were not really Hudson and Harrigan, and that was, in fact, I guess the second incarnation of Hudson and Harrigan in this market, which uh, in a way, maybe the third. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure. I don't know if you know this, but the original Hudson and Harrigan were a couple of guys, couple of guys named Stevens and Pruitt who were legendary on Rock 101 KLOL with their morning show for many years in late 80s Mm -hmm. and early 90s. They were the original Hudson and Harrigan on 610. So you're right. It wasn't their actual names. And uh, Fred and Randy, was it? Yep. Who did Hudson and Harrigan when you and I were there. Great guys. They were really good guys. And, yeah, it was a different time in radio, that's for sure. It's different, and it constantly changes. Okay, a couple of things. Give me two or three of your favorite all-time TV play-by-play guys. Guys who do, you know, it could be the NFL, baseball, whatever. Who do you like best on television? Uh, you know, I'm biased, and it's almost like I have this sports DNA that I refer to that developed when I was growing up in Brooklyn, New York. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's why I still root for a couple of the New York teams, and I know that a lot of people in Houston have not been very happy about that over the years, but I feel like it's just in me. I can't. There's nothing I can do about it. So I'm, I'm a Marv Albert guy. I've always been a Marv Albert guy. And Marv, actually, you mentioned TV, but when I grew up, Marv was, was – the radio guy. Marv did right. uh, Knicks basketball on the radio, Rangers ho- hockey on the radio. Uh, he did some Jets football on the radio. Um, but obviously, he's a very well-established and legendary TV play-by-play guy as well. So Marv will always be number one for me. Um, I-, I always loved um, uh, Vin Scully a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I know that he retired after what, 66 or 67 years as the voice of the Dodgers. But I think a lot of people still miss him. His national broadcasts on, uh, on uh, the World Series and things like that were just fantastic. So I guess I'm kind of an old school guy. I would go with Mar- Marv Albert and Vince Scully kind of at the top of my list. I'm trying to think who else would be on that list. What do you think of the, cur- what do you think of the current guys doing, um, doing the NFL? The big three of Buck, Nance... Uh, when you look at uh, Al Michaels still going on NBC, Mike Tirico ready to take over. I'm fortunate enough to actually know Jim Nance a little bit. He and mm-hmm. I, he was actually still working here in Houston when I got here. So I have a friendship with Jim Nance and also great respect for him as a professional. So he's obviously one of my favorite people. I think Tony Romo has been groundbreaking as the uh, color analyst with Jim Nance on CBS for the NFL. I mean, he's, he's as good as I've ever heard in that chair. Yeah, I, I think he's energized Nance, too. You know, not that he needed it, but it just 
it just seems better. Nance seems like a better Nance with Romo than he did with Phil Sims. Uh, yep. There's just the chemistry there. Like he's rejuvenated him. Yes. And if you want to include, uh, I guess you might call them niche sports, David Faraday has always been one of my favorites. If David oh, yeah. Faraday is on a golf telecast, I'm there. You got me. Yeah. I never understood what happened between him and CBS. So uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. Um, I don't know if I can talk about this on this podcast, but uh, maybe I'm just going to go. Not anything. Anything. All right. All right. So you're from Brooklyn. And I was shocked to know, and this is after we worked together. I think you and I worked together maybe two and a half years in afternoon drive. And by the way, for the record, uh, when the morning show became available on Sports Radio 610, I wanted to be in the morning and I wanted you to come with. But I'm glad you brought that up. They wanted both of us to move to morning. Yeah, I remember saying, I remember saying, Mark, I'm not a morning guy. <laughs> I don't think this is going to work out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be late for the show a lot. Oh, jeez, I know. It's so I didn't want, like, I didn't want to leave you. I wanted us to go as a team to the morning because uh, I kind of am a morning guy. Like the one thing about afternoon drive that I hated was I would come in and we'd start at two, and from two to three, I was like let's go five to six you know i'm just i'm starting to lose it you know and that's when you have to be at your best in an afternoon drive show it's it's kind of the opposite of morning morning like six to eight you got to be so great and then it kind of tapers off i mean you got to be great all the time but the energy level it's okay that it's going down because you know your audience is at work now uh afternoon it's the opposite and i just didn't have the juice in that five o'clock hour sometimes i just felt that way well, and the other part of it was not only am I not a morning person, but, um, and I say this perhaps at the risk of maybe offending a couple of mutual friends of ours. I mean, I still count, I still count Seth Payne and Sean Pendergast as some of my best friends in the business. Um, I'm not a morning sports talk guy in general. Oh, okay. It's, it's, I mean, if I'm up at that time, it's just not to me the ideal time to be talking sports. I'd much rather be mm -hmm. talking sports in the afternoon or evening. I actually thought the original model on FAN back in the day when they launched, when Don Imus did four yep. hours in morning drive, that was not a sports talk show. And then they segued into sports talk around 10 a.m. To me, that's the ideal. If you do mm -hmm. one of those sort of uh, jack of all trades morning shows, that dabbles in some sports, but it's not exclusively sports, and then segue into the hardcore sports talk at 10 a.m. To me, that's ideal. Yeah, I, I always thought similarly that morning should be fun. And it's yeah. okay to talk sports, but let's be fun. Let's make it fun talk, not deep dive analytics, metrics. You know, like, oh, if you start giving me a bunch of numbers in the morning, my head's going to explode anyway. So uh, got to have some fun. But that's, the, yeah, I miss really, you want to talk about WFAM being a success. I miss, they got to give them all the credit in the world in the early going. I mean, he carried that radio station just like I worked at WQAM in Miami where Neil Rogers was carrying the station, but he was a midday guy who really right. didn't talk much sports, but uh, those, those, obviously you can sustain yourself now, but yeah, I, I feel very similar about the, the way you approach things in the morning. Uh, well, but and, and for those not aware, Imus was stern before stern. Imus yeah. was the original shop jock. And uh, you know, I know it didn't mm -hmm. end well for Imus at, at FAN and, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really a huge fan of Stern because Stern is so about Stern, right. but those guys, you know, have to be given a lot of credit. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, Imus is in the movie Private Parts, you know, Howard Stern stars as himself. And uh, when he goes to WNBC, Imus is there. Yeah, it's, it's fun stuff. 
anybody who likes the radio business has got to love that movie. So uh, tell me something. When you are, I found out while we were working together and off the air that you used to have a thick Brooklyn accent. And yeah. you, I guess when you got to El Campo, but tell me the, the process, the story of, of smoothing out the uh, edges, taking that 300 sandpaper and getting rid of that Brooklyn right. accent. How did you do that? And when did you realize you kind of had to or wanted to? You know, you, I mean, you're probably going to be a little disappointed in the story because <laughs> there's not much to it, to be honest with you. Okay. I got hired. Actually, my first job in radio was in Rosenberg in 1981 when I moved here. I worked there for nine months. They fired me because I was an idiot. And that's that's the truth. I was Wait, still acting. What, what was in Rosenberg? What station? KFRD. They okay. were they had an AM-FM combo. The AM was a uh, farm show and morning drive and then Spanish music. Uh, all day long. The FM was a country music station. Jenny and I were actually out there a couple of weeks ago just driving around and it's the building is still there but the station's completely gone. But anyway, they hired me to, to sell advertising so I had a sales job and the way they hooked me was there's a new high school opening up, BF Terry, which of course has been there almost 40 years now. But the Terry Rangers were the new high school in Rosenberg and they said we need someone to do their play-by-play -play on the radio of their basketball and, and baseball games. And so I was like, I'm in. So I, I lasted like nine months because, as I said, I was 23 years old and acting like I was 12, you know, still partying, still waking up late, still – I was just very irresponsible. I deserved to be fired. So I was off for about three or four months collecting unemployment in the summer of 82 when I heard about the job in El Campo. So El Campo was the first time I was on the air every day doing sports casts and calling games. And I was on the air a lot. And I still did sound like the Brooklyn guy then. But honestly, Mark, it was just reps. I never did anything conscious, conscious uh, on my own part to uh, alter the way I sounded on the air. I just knew I, I couldn't sound like Joe Brooklyn on the air. And so I just yeah. tried to be careful about how I spoke and how I enunciated and pronounced different things. And the next thing you know, I'm talking like you and I are talking like right now. Like mm -hmm. I have no Brooklyn accent now anymore. Right. I mean, I know a lot of people who retain the Brooklyn accent and maybe when they go on the air, it, it kind of goes away. Like, mm -hmm. have you, have you ever heard Linda Cohn off the air from ESPN? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's tidy, tidy, tidy off the air. <laughs> <laughs> but on the air, you would never know. She's got that thick New York accent. So it was really just something that evolved. I've told you before that I just needed the reps. And I got the reps over about five years in El Campo. And all of a sudden, I didn't sound like that Brooklyn guy anymore. I would go home to Brooklyn, and I'd, I'd catch hell for saying beer instead of beer. Now, <laughs> <laughs> it, it just happened that's really the only way i can explain it it just happened so when you drink a little bit does it kind of come back a little or yeah. when i have a few beers four becomes four yes <laughs> <laughs> that's that's but you know i I've, I've i've always been impressed with that rich because you know i can't tell you how many people you know i know like my stepfather who came from milan in italy and never ne wanted to and never could get rid of his accent and, uh, you know, my mom used to joke with them, like, from West Side Story, like, better get rid of your accent, you know, the line of the movie right. uh, in the song America. Um, and, you know, even we go to church and, uh, you know, there's a priest from India there and he's like, the Holy Spirit 
And I'm like, you can say spirit, work on it. Come on, try, you know, not that, Oh, it's an utter necessity, but you know, like sometimes it's yeah. hard to understand some of the words. Uh, if, it would I was, be, if I wasn't a broadcaster, mm -hmm. I would still sound like that. I, I truly believe that. Okay. I, I know plenty of people from New York who've moved to other parts of the country, not broadcasters, who still sound exactly the way they sounded when they grew up in New York. If I had not been on the radio every day, and I do have to, I, I suppose I should also mention a class my senior year at the University of Dayton, uh, Voice and Diction. That opened up a whole world to me that I did not know existed beforehand. Because, you know, you grow up in your little corner of the world. You say things the way you think they should be said. Right. And I learned in that class that, you know, there's another more proper way of utilizing the English, English language. And it actually did influence me. Okay, when you were doing sideline for the Texans, what was your favorite win? And it doesn't have to be necessarily the best win that they had during that time, but do you have one that's more of a favorite than others, or how do you remember that? The, the, my most favorite game I ever did was uh, three below at kickoff in Green Bay. Mm -hmm. I think that was 2008, Matt yep. Schaub beat the Packers. Mm -hmm. It might have been 08. Uh, it, it was 08. 08. That was, that was one of those sort of pinch me experiences. I'm at Lambeau Field in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It was just, it was very surreal. That's one I'll never forget. Probably my favorite game though was, and I actually have a, a, a framed picture in my TV room of uh, a touchdown catch from this game. It was the, the, the game in Cincinnati, I want to say 2011, mm -hmm. when the uh, Texans clinched their first playoff win. Right. And the picture is of Kevin Walter catching the pass from T.J. Yates that clinched yep. it with that late touchdown. That was a big, big moment, not only for me personally, but for the, for the franchise, for the city. I mean, I, I actually remember thinking that day about those five years when we had, went without a NFL team in Houston and how far mm -hmm. we've come since then. And as you know, the Texans struggled mightily in their first few years of existence. And that was kind of very, very special. That was a, that was a day I'll never forget. That was one of those, wow, this, this franchise has arrived. This is pretty cool. Well, I remember uh, you know, the, the story is legendary of the players being in the locker room and, and watching the end of the Saints-Titans game on the monitor. And when right. that game was over, they were champions. But you were outside the door. And I remember we were talking to you and you're like, I'm outside the door. I'm <laughs> outside and I can hear them in there. Like we were on pins and needles. Like when is this going to happen? Because the clinching moment ha actually happened after the game was over. Uh, the, the roar that went up in the, from – we were on the other side of the door from the Texans locker room. Mm -hmm. Myself, John McClain, Mark Berman, several other members of the Houston media. And the roar that went up from that locker room, we all just kind of jumped because it was like nothing you've ever heard before. You know, when that game you referred to uh, ended and it was official that they had clinched the playoff berth, Man, the party was on. I, I think I think that was also the same night there was an impromptu rally in Budweiser Plaza. Yes. Only my home. yes. It, it was, was pretty cool good. stuff. Yeah, very cool it, stuff. It was. Well, Rich, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. It's been great to catch up. And I know we could go another three hours and and maybe we will another time. Anytime, Mark. I really enjoyed it. And I still enjoy you guys on Texans Radio all the time. Keep uh, keep going, keep it going, and keep entertaining us. All right. Thanks so much. Well, that's going to do it for the Vandermeer's View podcast. Have a great day, everyone. Check out all the other material on the Texans app at HoustonTexans.com and go Texans.